0: You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job
1: growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. everybody and welcome to the October 13th episode of carbon removal newsroom. Today we'll be covering policy and I have with me Ben Rubin, co-founder and executive director at the Carbon Business Council. Ben, thanks for joining today.
2: Thanks so much for having me here, Radhika.
1: And then as always, Chris Barnard, policy director at the American Conservation Coalition.
0: Thanks for having me again.
1: Well, we love having you, Chris. You've been here from the beginning. And um, myself, Radhika Mulgavkar, Head of Supply and Methodology at NORI. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about the Carbon Business Council, which in July, um, over 40 carbon removal startups announced the launch of this new industry group. Since then, there's been huge growth with um, well over 70 members of of the Carbon Business Council. The group's goal of which, uh, to be full disclosure, Nori was a founding member, is to serve as a resource for our members, lawmakers, the energy industry, and the environmental community to advocate for the responsible growth of the carbon management industry. We also are all um, subject to an ethical oath to restore the earth. Um, And that pledge basically states that signed members, companies will adhere to a set of ethical guidelines, such as a commitment to ensuring that the industry grows to benefit communities, and that the companies will support emission reduction offsets and efforts as well as carbon removal. Ben likes to talk about it like the Hippocratic Oath for CDR. So with that, um, I will just get started and let Ben, you can just kind of jump in and tell us a little bit about the Carbon Business Council, the ethical oath, and you know, why you put this group together.
2: That sounds great. Yeah, and thanks again, Radhika, for having me on the show. Looking forward to being here today and to the conversation with you and Chris. So yeah, the Carbon Business Council, like you covered Radhika, is a nonprofit trade association for innovators in the carbon management ecosystem. Uh, We just responding to the scientific need that the world needs to remove and manage gigatons of CO2 to, to help stop the uh, worst impacts of climate change we we think that innovators are uniquely positioned to lead that charge we see that innovation happening and we we are a, a forum to bring together the the community to bring these innovators to the policy table uh to help create a flow of information so that startups and early stage companies are learning about the wealth of federal policies coming down the pike and and helping where they can to, to shape and inform those policies in a way that can help really just encourage innovation as we uh work towards this goal of gigaton scale carbon management.
1: So Ben, as you've mentioned before, the Carbon Business Council is big tent or tech neutral, basically from a CDR perspective. Um, Curious how you think about it. Does that include nature-based, engineered, more on the manufactured side, but all sorts of manufactured um, solutions? And so far, has that caused any tension within the group?
2: Yeah, what's what's been great is the idea of tech neutrality really originated from our members of different companies working on different approaches to carbon management, just generally feeling like the the carbon management industry, especially at this juncture, benefits from a level playing field. By having a level playing field and and letting different forms of carbon removal move forward, uh, we're able to have innovation happening across the ecosystem. And really, it's going to take that innovation to help bend the technology cost curve, make sure that the supplies of carbon removal and management that we want to see continue to scale up. And that, that support has been uh, it's been working really well uh, among the companies to have uh, a company that might be working on nature based solutions, standing alongside a utilization company, working with a marketplace, working with the direct air capture company. It's been great to see these points of connections happening. And it's also been great to see, even since the time that we launched, uh, policies being introduced and in moved forward that are tech neutral for the industry, that, that affirm this need for carbon management, but but don't uh, necessarily put the finger on the scale towards one particular technology or approach. And one particular example I'd call out is something like the RD&D budget that uh, has $1 billion for carbon dioxide removal that was passed in the CHIPS Act, bipartisan legislation that was signed. This doubles DOE's current RDD and d budget for carbon removal, and this is encompassing of all forms of removal. And so we're, we've obviously been, been thrilled to see tech-neutral efforts like this coming from the federal government.
1: So, Chris, you know, I know that we've sort of talked about how CDR has been relatively bipartisan on the on the you know federal side. I'm wondering if that continues to be the trend, especially with upcoming elections ca- happening in November, are you or are you seeing sort of the interest in CDR continuing or are, is the government pivoting away?
0: Yeah, I think like we've talked about before, there has been a lot of bipartisan interest in CDR and funding that and funding the necessary R&D. We've seen a lot of that funding already come through, uh, like Ben mentioned. Uh, and, And I really do think that for a lot of Republican members of Congress from places like Texas, Louisiana, et cetera, that are really oil and gas heavy states, they also realize that this is important to the future of their state, the future of the industries and jobs that are in their districts. And so there really is a big bipartisan interest in this. I think, like I've talked about before on the show, there's really also uh, some next steps on permitting reform and, and some of the legal challenges around this and making it easier to embark on these projects um, and I'll also just say that it's exciting to see. Um, Ben's group get started and this this business Council really because it shows a, a level of maturity for the industry uh, and typically when industries reach that level of maturity they create their kind of like association to lobby and, and push for efforts in Washington, DC. And I think it shows uh, growth of the industry that there are this many companies involved pushing for this now because the reality is it won't just take members of Congress waking up and being like, oh, let's throw some money at CDR or let's make this law or that law. It really will require the active participation of the industry. Uh, and so I think that's a, a really exciting sign of maturity for, for this technology that really is crucial to tackling climate change.
1: Yeah, speaking of the, um, the the permitting issue, Ben and I were on a panel a couple of weeks ago, and that was definitely a huge topic of conversation for early startups. I also just saw that Texas is looking to take primacy over their class six permitting. I think, Ben, you put that in the Slack channel, which I think is an interesting um, pivot, or maybe not pivot, but an interesting way for like a state to take control over their CDR um, fate. Because like you said, states like Texas, Wyoming, you know they're perfect places to do storage of carbon. Um, so we'll see how that goes. One thing, Ben, I kind of have been watching as the um, carbon business council grows is it does seem like the nature-based solutions aren't yet as engaged in the CDR. I mean, like the short term, like forestry. Um, why? Why do you think that is, and how do we make sure that we don't kind of split the two groups apart? Which I think some people are already doing in their like discourse?
2: Yeah, yeah. That's a, a great question, Radhika. I think one thing that is, is I think good is, just as we're looking at the different forms of approaches to carbon removal, some of the lines between technological and nature-based are becoming increasingly blurred and, and that's in a good way. There's just so many approaches to CDR that in some ways it's it's getting almost harder for certain companies with certain carbon management approaches to say singularly you know i am this type of company or i am that type of company and so i think one is just we're, we're seeing a, a blurring of a lot of different approaches which is uh, a natural evolution of the ecosystem and there are signals that there, there continues to be support and funding for nature-based solutions on on the policy front as the Farm Bill continues to move forward in the next legislative cycle. That will obviously be major action for nature-based solutions. And at the state level, just yesterday, the governor of New York announced $18 million in funding inviting nature-based solutions specifically. So we're seeing activity happening on the nature-based solutions front. We're seeing some nature-based solution companies increasingly weave and integrate in technological approaches. And the Carbon Business Council itself has been a forum for some of these conversations to be taking place between nature-based solutions approaches and technological approaches, ocean-based CDR approaches to see where there is alignment on policy and different opportunities.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i really glad that, you, that that forum exists because I do, like I said earlier, feel like there's sometimes people who are pitting the solutions against one another rather than just saying we need it all, and that in some serve one purpose and some serve another purpose, but certainly they all are important. Um, so I'm wondering, Chris, if you see within the Republican caucus and maybe within the federal government in general, are the same folks who are interested in more of the technological solutions and R&D funding also interested in the Farm Bill and the nature-based, or is it kind of segmenting based on the interest of the state? And like, you know, the the Midwest senators are interested in the farm and the more like Western and Eastern Coast, coastal uh, communities are interested in the technologically based solutions.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually do think that there obviously there was always some kind of geographic variability with members and what's relevant for their districts, but one of the cool things about nature based solutions is that they really are pretty widespread across the US and so a lot of it's not just like oceans it's not just forests it's also grasslands and prairies and all those different types of uh, ecosystems and they really do exist in a pretty incredible array of diversity across the country and there is enormous interest from republicans on that in fact uh, the only forester in congress is bruce westerman a congressman from arkansas and he's uh, he co-sponsored or introduced the, the Growing Climate Solutions Act, which would help a lot with this. He is also uh, behind the Trillion Trees Act. And so he's very much pushing uh, nature as one of the big solutions that Republicans can get behind to also reduce emissions, increase community resilience, offer economic benefits to rural communities and all those kinds of things. So I, I really do think that on CDR, whether it's natural or technological, there really is a very broad buy-in from, from both sides of the aisle.
1: Um, so Ben, I'm going to take you back to the beginnings of the Carbon Business Council. When you first talked to Nori, it was—I remember how excited we were by the thought. As Chris said, it seemed like there—it was a moment in time that meant the industry was getting to a certain point of maturity. Um, I'm wondering how your conversations with companies have evolved since the beginning to now. And you know what kind of questions are people, and particularly the folks the, on the CDR side, asking, and what are the like types of support that they need?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's been great getting to interface with different companies, hearing their excitement, hearing the questions that come in about it. I I think broadly, when we connect with companies across the board, there's just there's been support to be able to connect and collaborate with others in the space, and and folks who join the Carbon Business Council, I think subscribe to the same belief that we have that a rising tide can raise all ships. It's, we we have such big carbon removal goals to hit when it comes to the amount of carbon that we're taking out of the atmosphere, when it comes to the amount of carbon that we're managing or utilizing that uh, companies in the space are realizing that they need to work together. And so I think companies are asking us about uh, exactly what that collaboration looks like, how they can connect with other peers in the space where uh, approaches they might have might be relevant for others when it comes to the responsible growth side of the equation i I think there's generally been support to be able to sign on to that ethical oath for the earth and and work on creating and and channeling and and marshalling towards responsible growth of the industry when it comes to policy companies have been hungry to hear what's coming down the pike and unpacking 45q and unpacking other provisions within the inflation reduction act until we get a lot of questions about that i will say that interestingly you know we do get questions from companies of uh, especially if they're an early stage company, uh, questions of, I'm an early stage company, am I ready to be part of something like this? In, in some cases for a company, it might be the first trade association that they're joining. And I think it echoes this conventional idea that that's persisted in, in some elements of startups that uh, a company is a startup for a while and then at some point They will be uh, more a part of policy making and as we tell companies when when that question comes up for us uh, so much of this is moving right now and we just see this really important role to have innovators at the policy table so that policies can be shaped to foster and and really help encourage the innovation that we think we need to see to hit the carbon removal targets that we need to hit and so it's great to have a dialogue, a back and forth with the companies about why now really is the time to to be a part of something like this and hearing some of that, you know, is, is this, is this the right time for me? That's, that's one conversation we have, but across the board, just, I think a lot of enthusiasm and support to be able to partner with other folks in the space. And and again, that's companies who might be working on ocean-based CDR solutions that want to work with companies working on technological or nature-based. It it might be folks working on utilization who are looking for more sources of their CO2. And it's companies across the board just looking for what are those points of commonality across policy that can help to to grow and scale the industry.
1: So Chris, obviously you've been following the carbon removal industry for a while now. And so there's a ton more government support in the last year. It's pretty phenomenal when I think about when I started back two years ago, how much has changed. Um, But are there other things that you're seeing that the public sector should be doing to help the industry grow? I know there's a lot of parallels to solar, but do you see parallels to other types of industries? You know, Some companies are trying to make it more like a vaccine moonshot. So how do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I think right now, especially with the increasing business and private sector uh, kind of engagement on this and and in DC and through, through these kinds of initiatives, I really do think that the most important thing that the industry specifically um, and kind of the public sector and private sector together need to demonstrate is that there is economic competitiveness for these types of solutions um, and to show a clear path forward that with the necessary support, with kind of the rules and regulations and permitting being done in the right way that this is our vision for making this an economically competitive solution to tackling climate change. And I think that really is, should be the number one priority for the industry because at the end of the day, like that, that's what solar and wind proved, right? Is that they, it was high upfront costs, but they were able to bring that down and they were able to show commercial viability. And I really think that is the, the most important next step for the industry.
1: Yeah, we've touched on permitting a few times. I think the other thing that uh, I hear a lot, and I think, Ben, you do too, right, is that navigating the federal government is really difficult, and CDR does not fit neatly into any bucket within the different agencies, and so that's one thing I would add that I hope the federal lawmakers start to consider is how to make it more streamlined for CDR companies not only to permit but to know so what kind of access to regulations access technical help as they need it and not feel like they part of their program belongs under doe and part of it belongs under usda or whatever it may look like um because for small companies that's really hard to figure out and navigate while also trying to innovate um and they just don't have the time and resources but with that i will pivot to the white paper because this is where some of the policy recommendations that um, the carbon business council has started working on um, were put into writing. And so uh, as Ben well knows, uh, a group of us working group from this Carbon Business Council just released a white paper that was titled Unlocking Carbon Dioxide Removal with Voluntary Carbon Markets. We announced it at New York City Climate Week and had a great panel discussion about it as long as as well as an event. Um, But Ben, when you first organize this group? What were you hoping to accomplish, and what do you think are the key messages?
2: Yeah, and thanks again for your contributions to the White Paper Attica. It was great to have you as a co-author of the paper along with several of our members who met on a recurring basis to develop the content, and we were fortunate to benefit from great feedback from the Carbon Business Council members, from, from expert reviewers outside of the Carbon Business Council. For we we came to uh, this focus on voluntary carbon markets for our first white paper just because vcms offer this promising pathway for carbon removal to enter into the market to create some of those economic opportunities that chris was just talking about but there's where there's opportunities there's also challenges with with the market and so with the current market as it is for carbon removal startups working to enter it and so we wanted to crystallize exactly what those opportunities are what those challenges are and and put out a crystallized set of recommendations for how we thought uh for both uh, on the policy side and the marketplace side for what we thought could happen to really help voluntary carbon markets unlock gigaton scale removal I, I think one of our goals from the outset in crystallizing this and putting together recommendations in one coherent place is that it can continue to be a resource now for both decision-makers, stakeholders, the larger uh, communities of so folks engaging in voluntary carbon markets. And by having this core set of recommendations, we've we've just in the short time since White Paper's been released, I've really had an opportunity to, to take this and, and get it in front of some key decision-making processes that are, are moving right now for voluntary carbon markets. So to call a, a couple out where we've submitted Uh, responded to open consultations, responded to RFIs, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission uh, out of the U.S. federal government had an open request for information about if and how the federal government should provide oversight of voluntary carbon markets. We were able to take and and share our recommendations with them. The Integrity Council on Voluntary Carbon Markets is thinking about similar issues globally. We were able to take our comments and, and submit a response to that. And then as the most recent response, the UNFCCC right now, ahead of COP27, has uh, an open consultation about how carbon removal fits into article six which is the mechanism for global markets under the paris agreement and and again that was another area where we can take and socialize the findings of our white paper and so it's, it's been great to have this document for us which is very much actionable meant to be taken off the shelf used uh put in front of these types of opportunities and so we will continue looking for these open consultations responding to share the perspectives of uh, carbon management innovators and and how markets can can really help uh incentivizing gear up around carbon removal.
1: So, um, you know, Chris, as Ben was just noting, there is a whole bunch of interest in voluntary carbon markets, uh, you know, at, at the regulatory level at both, you know, both in this country and in the EU um, and in the UK. So obviously everybody's expecting these to grow. Where do you see policymakers needing to step in or do you even see there's a need for policymakers to step in to help regulate these markets, um, and I, and how do you think about the EU's potential approach if you've been following it all, and the U.S. approach, which the U.S. seems much more lazy faire right now than the EU, um, than the what at least I've heard of the EU's thinking.
0: Yeah, I think one of the broad issues with voluntary carbon markets that we've seen over the last few years is questions around either the additionality of the, uh, of the carbon removal or offset, which is basically, as you guys know, but just for listeners, whether that project would have happened with or without the funding through the car, through the marketplace. And so the whole idea of this obviously is to fund projects that otherwise wouldn't happen. It's not just conserving forests that already were going to be conserved. It's about like actually additionally removing carbon dioxide and One of the issues has been that because we have all these kind of like scattered marketplaces and mechanisms around everywhere that it's been difficult to uh, make sure there is a good standard for additionality. Uh, Another one is obviously permanence that if you invest in a a forest being conserved that what happens if that forest burns down in one of the wildfires out west or whatever it might be so that's another question. Uh, So I think I think one of the big roles that the government can play is kind of being the convener and streamliner of these processes and providing a lot of transparency and kind of uh, central direction when it comes to verifying particular projects or like what are the guidelines for doing this to make sure that these carbon markets are actually doing what they're intending to do. So I think that's really the, the most important role for the government to play, uh, like certifying and what are the standards and guidelines. I think one additional thing, which is something the Growing Climate Solutions Act focuses on is the technical assistance for the participants in these markets not just the people buying or actually not really the people buying but the people offering the credits right so your farmers your conservation groups um whoever it might be that there are best practices that they can use um, and that that information should be public and shared and try to help them uh, figure out how they can actually take part in these carbon markets and so I think some of that technical assistance will also be really necessary, and the government can act as a convener to, to help disseminate some of that.
2: Ben, any thoughts? It's it's all great points from Chris. I think what what Chris, just to expand on what Chris was talking about with additionality, I mean, that was something we were also pointing to in the white paper, just how we can harmonize and reach a, a common understanding of definitions of when, uh, you know, you could have two different folks saying additionality, but meaning two different things with that. And so the more that we can coalesce around markets uh, and, and the meaning of them, just the stronger it can be and the easier it will be for different companies to enter the markets and sell carbon removal, because there is this common set of definitions. So definitely just wanted to reinforce and call out that point, Chris was making. And I think what's, what's good to to point to an example like what's taking place in the EU is just an effort to add some of that that definition and clarity so that there's more more certainty for the markets and more, I, I think, Clear, just, yeah, clear ways for companies to enter and know know what they're they're getting into on on both the buyer and seller side of that equation.
1: You know, uh, I'll just add one thing as since I was a co-author, I think the other thing, Ben, right? We were trying to stress is carbon removal is fundamentally different from offsets that have been traditionally sold, emission avoidance and emission, you know, um, reduction. And so, we need to think about it differently and it's not that you can't take some of the structures that existed from those those mechanisms those prior emission avoidance reduction schemes but that they have to be thought of from a carbon removal perspective which may fundamentally alter how you think about some of these definitions standards approaches and so you know um that is certainly like the premise that i took when writing my section at least um then finally uh, last question about the white paper really quickly Blen is like how do other member companies view voluntary carbon markets. Is it the, their primary customer, and you know what are the policy changes you think would be most beneficial, or when you hear about most from those um, member companies.
2: Yeah, and also a great point, Radhika, on that. Just to uh, agree with you on on that point that we underscored in the white paper about how important it is to make sure that how you know the the differences that exist between what uh, traditional offset might be versus what a carbon removal credit might be. So agreed, and, and appreciate you calling out that point. And yeah, great question about how how member companies are looking at this. I think ultimately, for carbon removal to to scale up, companies are looking at how we can create multiple pathways to market uh, vcms are, are certainly one of them they're projected to go grow to a 50 billion dollar industry by 2050 and so companies are certainly looking at this uh, especially and as we made some recommendations in the white paper there's some forms of carbon removal that are not on the market today and so how can we create a pathway for for that to enter through having verification processes that, that you can give the market the, the assurance it needs we there are multiple other pathways that that companies are, are pursuing in tandem there's uh the the obviously the compliance markets which exist parallel to voluntary carbon markets that, that some uh, companies are looking at there's the the possibility of direct purchases from a company without having to enter a voluntary carbon market there's the possibility of government procurement uh co2 that is being Captured or removed can be utilized, and so there's offtake agreements with some utilization companies. So there is a host of different pathways, and I think uh, as different companies stand up, their different business models, VCMs are, are uh, to, to varying degrees, you know, might be central to some companies' business models, or, or might play, you know, a, a complementary role with with some additional areas they have from it. Um, but we are just pleased to see multiple pathways uh, opening up to create the the markets that we need to see for carbon to be removed from the atmosphere.
1: Yeah, so the last thing we're going to talk about today are DAC hubs, which probably is one of the most tangible signs of the government's investment in carbon removal. So for our listeners who don't know, as part of last year's infrastructure bill, Congress directed $3.5 billion to the DOE to build four DAC hubs. So, um, Ben, can you give us the status of the DAC hubs and, and is the Carbon Business Council got any involvement in their development at this point?
2: yeah thanks like you said Rebecca, i do think it will be an exciting day when the funding availability notice on this uh comes out and we are expecting that any day now and it it will be it, it's going to be a milestone moment for carbon removal when this comes So the office of fossil energy and carbon management out of the energy department has been working really hard on this and, and we're grateful for everything that that they've been doing on it uh as as far as the I guess status of of what this looks like uh, this was like you said triggered by the bipartisan infrastructure act and then in May of this year the energy department released a notice of intent with additional info about what this funding availability notice might look like uh that is online and and uh interesting resource to look to and I think can expand on some of how the carbon business council has been looking at that thinking about that on behalf of our members uh but uh that that funding availability that that noi will be followed by the um funding availability notice and again that that's coming down the pike soon uh doe is is actively working on this and and building out their team to have even more capacity to do to do it um, there's actually a, an open job to, at the energy department right now to bring on a regional direct air capture hubs manager um so for anyone listening to this who, who wants to live and breathe and DACubs every day. Um, the application for that is 1017, and and I think the energy department is is looking for as as wide a range of talented applicants as possible on that. So I wanted to call out that opportunity. And yeah, the the carbon business council has been fortunate to be in touch with the energy department, share some of our thoughts, while obviously um, recognizing and and supporting um, DOE's autonomy to to move that that process forward in 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 the way that they want to as a department.
1: You know, one thing I think is interesting is like. This 3.5 billion, I don't know, it didn't seem to get like the attention that a frontier group gets or anything, but it like it, the funding just dwarfs anything we've seen really. And it's for one type of carbon removal. So it kind of speaks to the power of the federal government to move an industry forward, at least with funding uh, and which is kind of key to all of these things. Uh, I do know that the one question, as you were saying, uh, you know, Ben, that the DOE is, probably wrestling with is what is the definition of DAC? And so I'm kind of curious from both of you, what do you think are the considerations these experts within DOE should be considering, um, especially in light of it probably having fairly significant consequences for future government decisions? And so Chris, I'll kind of start, I'll start with you and then I'll move over to Ben.
0: Yeah, I think some of this is quite technical that I, might not be best place to to answer and and Ben's probably much smarter on this than I am, but the one thing I will say kind of from a, a policy perspective is I would caution against kind of the approach that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission took with nuclear plants and regulating the safety of those uh, so what happened essentially was they took what is called a prescriptive regulatory approach as opposed to a standards based regulatory approach what that means is essentially They set out saying, okay, this is exactly what a plant needs. It needs X amount of this X amount of that. It needs to meet these particular criteria. And so what happened is that they actually came up with like a one size fits all approach and they said, every project has to fall under these specific criteria laid out in advance. Whereas a standards-based approach says you need to reach this certain level of safety, or in the case of DAC hubs, you need to reach this certain level of carbon removal with like. Technology measures through direct air capture, whatever it might be, but to set out specific standards that need to be hit, and then for the industry to be able to come up with the best and most efficient uh, ways of reaching those standards, uh, rather than that that allows for a lot more innovation and also allows for a lot more direct buy-in from industry leaders. That's kind of my hunch when it comes to this, but Ben might disagree or have kind of different a different perspective on that.
2: Appreciate everything you called out on that, Chris. It, we're we're in alignment there. I, I think that uh, the the more that we can have innovation encouraged across policy is is just beneficial to reach these gigaton scale targets that we want to see. In the case of the the DAC hubs, there there is a stipulation that the the hubs need to each be removing. One million uh, tons of CO2 each year from the atmosphere, which is a significant amount when we multiply that out across the four hubs. That there will be, uh, I would call out that the notice of intent, uh, just just to refer back to that, and again, that's on the DOE's website if anyone wants to refer to it. Uh, mentioned four particular types of carbon removal that uh, they they were looking at as part of the NOI, and just to specifically mention these four, it was chemical direct air capture technology, what I, I think some folks tend to think of when they think of DAC, but it also included biomass carbon removal and storage, it included ocean-based carbon removal, as well as enhanced mineral, mineralization, and uh, we are looking to see if this uh, set of approaches will be included in the funding availability notice or if it will take a, a more narrow definition of direct air capture uh we think the broader uh a definition that's taken the, the more uh we can encourage and, and have innovation as being part of the table and and i think uh to to a point that you asked when you were asking the question radica uh it, the the definition of exactly what direct air capture is as the noi shows from the evolution of the noi to this upcoming foa it's something that continues to evolve. And so we're we're looking closely at that. The Carbon Business Council will be putting out a statement and resources for the community when the DAC hubs FOA is announced and uh just recognizing that uh, you know, however broad or narrow the FOA is, we're operating under this direct air capture and and the hubs. And, and while it's exciting and, and a milestone to see this moving forward, we'll need to see similar action, keeping pace on all forms of carbon management to really keep pace with the the removal that, that we want to be
1: seeing yeah and, and i'm going to be particularly curious you know with the uh requirements around the number of tons that have to be removed how they also navigate as we've touched on a few times the permitting issues for this you know whether they're going to cite these and like particularly the traditional jack hubs in places where permitting doesn't become an issue you don't need a pipeline so there are also so many other interesting regulatory issues that come along with these DAC hubs beyond just the pure technology and drawdown that the potential they have. All right. Well, with that, I am going to just do a little bit of good news uh, for the week because, you know, who couldn't use a little good news? Last week, if you were listening, you might have heard our new host's love of otters, and she went on and on about otters. This week, I'm keeping up the animal theme and talking about Fat Bear Week. I don't know if anybody here votes, but it is super fun. And it's uh basically something that happens from the 5th of October through the 11th of October, where you vote on the fattest bear. It's kind of like the NCAA, you know, it's a bracket system and, uh, they're the bear, they're bears up in Alaska. And if you can even find a webcam watching them eat their salmon, but, um, this year for one, he may be one of the largest bears known in a brown bears known to man and you know congratulations to him it's a fun little thing that my family likes to do and so next year maybe some of our listeners will want to participate as well with that thank you ben thank you chris for joining as always really appreciate your time
0: thanks so much for listening to carbon removal newsroom